Hello and welcome to Shoot the Breeze, where we take a nostalgic look at a random football magazine from the past. I'm Andy Smith, aka Scott's Footy Cards on Twitter, and with me is Tom Brogan. Hello. In each episode, we'll invite a special guest to join us in trawling through the magazine and discuss anything contained within it. This could be anything from an article, to a photograph, to a competition, to an advert. Basically, if it's in it, then we'll talk about it. So sit back and let's shoot the breeze. Wriggles clear. Might just get the chip and he does, he's scored! Oh, what a great And uh, this week our guest is Jonathan Wilson. Jonathan's uh, editor of The Blizzard, co-host of their Greatest Games podcast, uh, writes for The Guardian and The Observer, among other publications. And he's also the author of several books, including Inverting the Pyramid, The Anatomy of Manchester United, Angels with Dirty Faces, The Footballing History of Argentina, and The Names Heard Long Ago, How the Golden Age of Hungarian Football Shaped the Modern Game. Thanks very much for coming along, Jonathan. Yes, thanks very much for having me. Thank you for joining us. I'll hand over to Tom to go through this week's magazine. So the magazine we're looking at this week is uh, Shoot from the 3rd of August 1974. It's a post-World Cup uh, edition. Uh, there's not too much on the front cover uh, compared to uh, other magazines we've looked at. We've got Peter Osgood in the front cover and a Southampton kit. And the three articles that it's trailing on the front page, World Cup final in colour, the Ramsey record and the six-figure stars uh, it's eight pence. This is shoot incorporating goal, and uh, other we think you notice is that this particular copy was reserved uh, by Mister Watson and his local news agent. So, anything else we want to see about the see about the front cover? Well, it would, it would drive me mad if uh, my news agent was writing my name on the. Uh... <laughs> Maybe not on a paper, but on a magazine, which I might be collecting. I, I, I wouldn't want that kind of damage. It's quite, it's weird, isn't it? That this was obviously always designed as a post-World Cup magazine. And yet the picture put on the front page is of a, I don't know what age is by now, but a 30, 30-something Peter Osgood, past his yeah. prime, playing for Southampton. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a perfectly okay picture, but it's not a real you know, striking picture. So it, it seems a slightly slightly odd cover to go for. I mean, I guess it fits in with the Six Figure Stars uh, article you know, about the, the, the transfers that summer, but it still seems seems a bit weird yeah, to me. It's a, yeah. it's a good good point. I mean, it is a World Cup focused magazine, so I never I never thought about that, but it does make sense. The the thing that I noticed from it as well was normally it has um, a few other countries the prices, but this one there's quite a few. There's Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Rhodesia, uh, Nigeria. Malaysia, Norway, Sweden, can't even read some of these, um, Malta, Spain and Holland and Italy. So there's, there's quite a few in there um, which we don't normally have. All right, so we go inside then and look at the first couple of pages. Pages two, pages two and three of the Ramsey record. Okay, so this is um, not long after Alf Ramsey's left uh, the England job, Don Revy's taken over and... Uh, shoot here is looking at all Alf Ramsey's games. This is an absolute goldmine of information at that at that time. 
uh, where you couldn't easily lay your hands on stuff like this. It's got all the games that Alf Ramsey took charge of England and all the players that Alf Ramsey, Alf Ramsey capped. Uh, do, do you want to maybe delve into this into this one, uh, uh, Jonathan? Yeah, I mean, I, I find this fascinating, and it's sort of it's very sort of world soccer in style, of, of um, yeah, a, a lot of a lot of stats, a lot of data, and, and you know the, the the point you make there, I think, is the key one that this this wasn't readily available. It wasn't you could just yeah click on Ireland and get it within ten seconds. Yeah, I do wonder though, like who was actually sitting there reading this? Who was going through going? Oh look, they they played. I don't know how many games that is. Seventeen games in in uh, in 1966. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it, it seems. Yeah, because having, having worked in, in newspapers and magazines, I know this would take quite a long time to put together. Not not even just in terms of collating the data, but in terms of laying it out and getting it all precise. So this is quite labour intensive for something that I'm guessing most people just skim through. Yeah. Now, what what I what I don't know there is. Is that am I just looking at that from the point of view of somebody who's yeah, essentially grown up in the era of the internet? Um, I mean, I, re- I remember having to refer to Rothmans when I very, very first started as a journalist. Um, but I, I, I'd, I'd love to know whether I mean, what, what sort of market was she's aimed at? It was aimed at sort of t- late teens, early twenties market? Does that sound about right? I, I don't even think it was that old. I, th- I think it was sort of maybe early teens, sort of. 12, 13 to yeah. maybe 18. But... So, I mean, were they really pouring through this stuff? I, I, I don't know. Uh, I mean, the, the thing that's interesting to me there is the um, the, the list of players that, that Ramsey called up. And that's the kind of thing you might see in a modern paper. Because yeah. uh, I think it's, um, is it 101 players he called up? Yeah, 101, yeah. In his 11 years. Um, and, and that's the kind of thing you might see in a modern paper because it is genuinely striking that he would call up that many yeah. Um, and then, and this, yeah, the, the text that goes with it on the, you know, that bit in the the, the pink sort of cyber on the left is very, it's very brief. It's quite punchy talking about him as being aloof. Um, so there's, there's sort of a there's a real effort to sort of penetrate what what made him, and, and this sort of you know, it, it makes a contrast between the public perception of this sort of quite distant figure and the fact all the players called him Alf. Whereas when you then talk to players, they no, no, he's totally aloof. We just called him out. <laughs> but yeah, there's a, a great Jack Charlton line. Uh, he says, uh, somebody says to him, what was Alf Ramsey like? And he says, I don't know, I only played for him for six years. <laughs> uh, so I, 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 mean, I find him a fascinating guy. I, I think we we now, it's in England, I think we massively underappreciate him. Um, that that I, I think because he was just the sort of figure he was and he was very reluctant to to explain things very suspicious of the press. I don't think we quite realise just how radical what he was doing was. And you know, when you when you look at the, the the sort of how football generally developed, Ramsey stands alongside Rhinus Michaels and Lobanovsky as a pioneer or, or Maslov maybe rather than Lobanovsky as a pioneer of pressing. He just didn't call it pressing and didn't talk right. about it. And and you can say that that the way those seeds then grew in, in, in an English environment or British environment did not lead to the riches that the seeds that, that, that Michaels or, or, or Maslow planted did. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, you know, I've read so many things of saying, oh, winning the World Cup was the worst thing that could have happened for England. Um, and I mean, from English people, I mean, obviously you think that, <laughs> but um, that, that, 
that it's sort of somehow sort of stymied development and got got England stuck in this sort of rigid four four two mentality. And it just seems to me sort of a, a bonkers way of thinking. I mean, it's not like there's all these other tournaments we won that kind of, <laughs> that we can afford to chuck the one we did win away. But it, yeah, the way he won it was by doing something totally different. You know, he, he changed the shape of the midfield. And and yeah, the, the, the famous story of the final, um, the final friendly before the World Cup in, in 66 and England played away in, in Hrotsov against Poland. And yeah, Ramsey was a very um, understated yeah, very suspicious of, of emotion. And he, he he read out the team to the press the day before the game. And he went to it, and everybody's expecting, he reads out the first 10 names, and everybody's expecting the 11th to be a winger. And he says, a number 11. And then he holds a dramatic pause and starts to stand up, Martin Peters. And he's out of the room before anybody can react to it, because he doesn't want to explain what he's doing. And that's the beginning of, of the wingless wonders. Uh-huh. And then the great thing about Ramsey, and the thing is, what we what we don't know is, did he do this because he wasn't quite confident in what he was doing, or was he, as I, I suspect, hiding away his innovation because he didn't want people to see it? Mm. Um, but the first, you know, the three group games of that World Cup, he played with a winger, and it was only for the game against Argentina in the quarterfinal he went wingless again, uh, and he'd done it against Spain in, in December '65. He did it in Kortsov in in, in uh, what would have been May or June 66 and then from the quarterfinals onwards but I, I genuinely think he worked out that was the way against good teams that was the way he was going to play but he didn't want to do it in the group stage because he didn't want to alert the rest of the world to what he was doing um, and, and so that, that culture of secrecy I think has led to him being underappreciated people just don't realise he was a really radical football thinker and of course you know, he played in the two great England humiliations of the early 50s. He played against the USA in 1950 when England lost 1-0. And he played against Hungary in the 6-3 defeat in, in 1953. So he'd had the... And that was at the time when he was playing for Arthur Rose Tottenham, who were very radical. So he you know, he came from this radical background and he, he saw the limitations of a traditional approach. Of course he was going to be radical. What he did with Ipswich, to take Ipswich from the third division to the top division and win the league with them in their first season in the top division, was incredible. But we sort of somehow we've, we've lost sight of what was incredible about it. And we sort of come a little bit resentful of <laughs> other people who came after him play slightly boring football in a similar shape, which seems to me, yeah, deeply unfair on him. Yeah. I guess it's like a, the Scottish version of that would have potentially been Craig Levine when he radically played with no strikers. Never quite, never yeah, quite. Yeah, that was a goal this draw against Czech Republic, wasn't it? I mean, it's, it's, it's not no, quite I mean, winning the World Cup, but goal. You know, has, if history had maybe taken a, a different turn, maybe you know we we could be looking at a World Cup victory for Scotland. But so, so looking at the main Alf cap, obviously there's a lot of legends in there, the '66 guys as well as Shelton and Keegan and Emlyn Hughes and all that. Are there any names that pop out for you there, Jonathan, that we might not kind of think of as? sort of great England players or guys that never got much of a, a turn um, in an England shot? Well, I mean, he was beginning to reshape the team uh, in the qualifiers for 74. Uh, and he, he actually gets really unlucky there. Um, he probably was overloyal to to the 66 core for, for too long. But, you know, Bobby Moore was, you know, the game away against Poland in in the, in the qualifiers for 74, Bobby Moore was... We, you know, it was a disaster. You know, responsible for one of the goals was all over the place, and he probably did. I mean, yes, it's a, it's a very common failing in managers to be too loyal. 
Um, but what, yeah, I think he had begun to, to sort of try and introduce some of those more maverick players of the seventies. So um, you look down that list and you see people like um, like Ralph Coates. I'm okay, not a maverick, but sort of a, a more so sort of skillful, more creative player. Um, yeah, who who else is in there? Um, he brought in John Hollands, who played for Chelsea, who was you know, part of that team. Kevin Hector had come in. There was an attempt to to begin to modernise. Um, and, and that that game, the, 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 that game against Poland at Wembley, the you know the one one draw, the Tomaszewski game, yeah. and Tomaszewski you know, was interviewed yeah, later yeah. in this this issue. Um, England were, I mean, it's, it's ridiculous that game had such consequences because England are really good in that game. You know, they had I don't know thirty chances to two or something, but Shilton makes a terrible mistake, and Tomaszewski has the game of his life, yeah. and because of that, Ramsey is sacked. Um, now there had been yeah, the, the 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 defeat to West Germany at Wembley in '72 in the quarterfinal of the European Championship. It, it, it's the first sort of. I mean, that's a slightly odd game as well. It's misremembered that Germany were brilliant for half an hour and could have been four or five nil up. They were one nil up, but England actually got back into the game. They levelled it at one one, and because it was a two legged game, he got a bit carried away chasing a winner and got done on the break twice by Gert Miller. And three one was probably a you know, a fair reflection of the game. But Germany just had a first first sort of, yeah, 25, 30 minutes where they played, yeah, Franz Beckenbauer said he'd never played in a team that played anywhere near that level. Uh, but that was sort of used as a, as a, oh, you know, Alf's fallen behind. And, and maybe he had to an extent. I mean, that, that, yeah, that happens. You're radical and then other people catch up and surpass you. But, uh, yeah, you do wonder what might have happened if he'd, if he'd stayed on and been allowed to rebuild after the failure for 74. It's quite interesting the, the the spread of different teams amongst those players is quite quite large. I mean, you've got Burnley, you've got Sheffield United, Blackburn. I saw Watford. So I mean, there, there's players coming from loads of different teams. Yeah, I mean, Tony Curry, the Sheffield United player, he's another one of those sort of very skilled seventies players who Ramsey tried to to bring in. But yeah, I think that's yeah. I mean, it's it's, it's obvious, isn't it? The spread of talent was the talent was spread much more through. Through yeah. the division in in those days, um, I mean that's something I sort of felt generally, kind of flicking through this that all the names are, are sort of are British names, mm. um, and it's actually I mean this is this is more my feeling than anything else. But since Sunderland got relegated to, to League One, it's changed slightly this season. But essentially, Sunderland just have only ever signed you know they've just signed English, Scottish, and Irish players. And I find them really hard to tell apart because they've all got quite similar names. Because <laughs> I get used to kind of, oh yeah, the Macedonian lad. Oh yeah, the Brazilian lad. Um, and now I'm just sort of faced with this. <laughs> it's, like, it's like reading a, I was like flicking through a phone book from like Leeds in, in 1975. It's just sort of like, every name is a is an English Irish name. Um, but yeah, it, it is. Uh, yeah, of course it's a step back into that world because that's exactly what it is. Yeah, we'll look at that later on because one of the questions Billy Bremner gets asked in his column is about continental players coming to coming to play in England. So we'll, we'll touch on that a wee bit a wee bit later. Uh, will we go over the page now, Andy? Uh, so ask the expert. So you've already shoehorned a mention of Sunderland in. But a, <laughs> there is actually a mention of Sunderland here in that uh, that wee bit about uh, League Cup. Uh, there's a question there about. Uh, 
from Keith Edwards of Litchfield, who said, I've read Wolves won the League Cup 1941-42, but a friend of mine says the Cup was not introduced until 1960-61. Could you please settle our argument? And uh, Shoot says, your friend is quite right, Keith, when he says the League Cup, at any rate, the one we now know, uh, wasn't introduced till the 1960-61 season. But during the war years, when normal competitions were suspended, there was another national competition, which went under the title of the League War Cup, Wolves won this in 1941-42, beating Sunderland 6-3 on aggregate in a two-legged final. You tell us any more about that competition, Jonathan, or that final? Uh, no, not specifically about that, but I think wartime football is is a genuinely fascinating topic. Mm. Uh, you know, in the First World War, uh, the English League carried on for seasons. It didn't finish till, till the summer of 1915. And the league was very heavily criticised for that. Um, and you know the, the idea being these were fit young men who who could have been fighting who who weren't, and then you got the footballers' battalions as a reaction to that. Um, but the, the the Second World War was yeah as ever, the administrators are fighting the last war, and so as soon as war is declared, the English league stops, uh, which three games into the season were Blackpool top of the table at the beginning of September. And what what, what what's amazing is. A month later, it all just starts again because they've realised, oh, actually, we need football. We need something for people to go and watch. Uh, but it doesn't start as the the, the, the proper league, it's, you know, these regionalised leagues and, and th- these cup competitions, uh, which would be two-legged so that both teams would get um, a home gate. Yeah. Uh, so, they, you know, they guaranteed the revenue from that. Um, and, yeah, you know, some of those stories from those games are... I mean, players could, could play for more than one club because often they'd be stationed somewhere... You know, away from the club they were they were registered to, so it was a lot looser. But they got huge attendances. So there was um, there was a game at Wembley. Uh, can't remember which year it would have been. But they 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 tried how to kick off early so that people would be home before dark, and they didn't. They just sort of didn't manage. So there's sixty thousand people at Wembley in the dark, <laughs> while the Luftwaffe are, are raiding. It was just sort of ludicrous sort of things. I mean, but the, you know, most of the rest of the year it just kept going. You know, Germany um, football didn't finish till April 1945. Um, so there's a, um, a Hungarian called uh, Alfred Schoffer. Uh, actually, I, I was reminded of him uh, last week, the week before, as I was taking a train uh, through, uh, through southern Germany. I was going from Paris to Vienna, and I went near a place called, um, uh, uh, what's it called, Priemem Kiemsee. Uh, which is sort of this resort. And Schoffer had, he coached in Italy, he won the league with Roma. So I think there's only him and Capello who have ever won the league with Roma. Um, oh, Lito must, have, Lito must have done it in the 80s as well. So the three of them won the league with Roma. But he won the league with Roma in the, in the early 40s. Goes back to Budapest. There's a network in Budapest of sort of sports people, coaches who... Um, they helped distribute fake ID cards to Jews and communists to to save them after, after Germany invades in uh, what was it March forty four uh, after Hungary tried to um, sign a separate peace with the Allies um, and, and so you know the proper crackdown on, on well um, you know, the horrific deportations to to Auschwitz um, I think eight hundred thousand Hungarian Jews died in three months but also you know communists are being um, uh, pursued as well, so they were they were distributing these fake ID cards, which you're getting from the Admiralty from 
something called Istvan Torch, who was a, had been a great player at Fence Farish and become a coach and then yeah, gets his job in the Admiralty. He's able to steal blank ID cards and yeah, make some out. Uh, they, but they also then got in touch with, or, or the Amer- American intelligence got in touch with them, the OSS, and they were providing details on troop positions and, and they had plans to sabotage the bridges in Budapest if, if, if necessary. Um, and he worked with them for a while. Then he, he weirdly suddenly gets appointed by a Munich coach early in 1945. And he go and he's, they're on the verge of winning the Bavarian Championship when the league is stopped in April. But he, he was found dead in a railway carriage uh, in, in uh, Piemont Clemency. Uh, and nobody, still nobody knows how he died because by the time the time body was found, this was late 45, um, it was under American control and it was just, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of dead bodies. They can't do autopsies on all of them. So the assumption is he had a stroke, but nobody actually actually knows how he died. Um, sorry, how did I get onto that? That seems a long <laughs> way from a question about Sunderland in 1942. The league where, uh, the wartime league. Oh, yeah. So, 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 yeah, German football carries on until April 45. Hungarian football never stops, just keeps going. Oh. Even when it's encircled by the Soviets, uh, football just keeps going. So wartime football is a very odd thing. It, it, it seems... Hmm. Um something that's not talked about very much and um, I can't remember any names off the top of my head but I've read about you know these massive players who ended up playing for things like Elgin up in you know little clubs up in Scotland for a game or two and things like that and and all that just seems to have been either forgotten or just people don't seem interested in it because it wasn't the proper the proper league yeah well I think that's the thing it just sort of it's, it's it's quite hard to explain because yeah players only pop up playing for the wrong clubs and you know it, it's not an official competition it is, it is outside that so I think the actual football itself is less interesting than the propaganda used to which it was put so I mean I started to research this at the beginning of the pandemic uh, when there was a bit of a you know there's a bit of a furore of you know should football really be going on and obviously we had the 100 day break in the Premier League um, and actually when it came back there was, you know, there's still a bit of, hang on, are we wasting tests on these players? Is this really the best use of time? And you realise pretty quickly, God, I need football. Like, and I, you know, I, I'm sitting there what, yeah, avidly watching Paderborn be Bremen or something, just because I, I, I need to watch yeah, men in coloured shirts running about a grass pitch. <laughs> that it, it is this great sort of um, opiate that, that, that sort of we need, not because of what it represents in itself, but because it then allows you to to discuss it on, on Twitter or in newspapers or yeah, podcasts like this one. Yeah. All right. Um, anything else we, we, we see there on that uh, Ask the Expert page? Well, how, how, many of these, how, many, how many of these do you think are real? <laughs> I, I suspect this is just the editors are like, oh, Christ, we've got to fill up a page. Let's ask ourselves <laughs> questions we already know the answers to. I mean, what colours did Dynamo Moscow wear? He's... Do people really rate it? I know. Again, it's like you can't just look it up online. Yeah, yeah. Do people really care about that? It's like is somebody really going to write to a magazine to find out the answer to well, that? They, like, mm. ring up the Russian embassy if you want, or the, <laughs> the Soviet embassy if you want to find well, out. It, you, so it just seems a very odd yeah. use of. I mean, it was it was something um, I was going to note about this, and we've already talked about it with the previous two pages with the all the information. It's it used to be if you wanted to know something, you would. You'd either have to look up reference books or write into a magazine or a newspaper and hope that your question gets answered. And then you have to hope that you don't miss it getting printed that single day. Yeah. And it's like now, you know, everything's 
obviously at the at the end of a Google search. I mean, just like the the one where he's asking about the Arsenal Storm Grass um, result. You know, how did they get in the competition? And information like that is just at our um, fingertips. But what I did, um, I found interesting the way how they've described Lazio in that. So they actually call them Lazio Rome, which which I've right, never, okay. never heard them called that before. Um, but yeah, yeah, people have asked this before about how many of these are actually real, and especially if you get a pound for each one, you know that's going that's yeah. going to the 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 kitty for the for the 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 tea time the tea time drinks I think yeah I mean yeah having again having worked in newspapers I know that often you just have to fill up the space and okay. uh, there's ways of doing that yeah. <laughs> uh, anything we want to see about the, the, the football funnies yeah they're not funny I don't understand most of them like yeah, Andy hates Andy hates uh, cartoons and then yeah I, 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 Okay, I understand the the first one, the middle bottom one. I get what the joke's supposed to be. The others, I don't even understand what the joke's supposed to be. Yes, yeah, see, see, my whole thing with, with and and Tom and others have sort of got me to appreciate the artwork a bit more. But like yourself, I just don't find them funny. Um, and the same with Robbie yeah. at the bottom there. I'm sorry, and it's I don't think I would have even laughed at them. I mean, seventy four, so I was only two at the time, but. I don't think I would have laughed at them at the time when I was younger because I just don't think they're, they're any good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I, agree with you. I, I kind of defend the, the artists because they're kind of, as well as doing this, they're probably knocking out cartoons for car magazines and for uh, you know cricket magazines and stuff at the, at the same time, you know. So um, I, I kind of, I, I do occasionally defend the, defend the artists, but I'm not, I'm not arguing with you that they're not fun. Sometimes it's indefensible. <laughs> so we go over over the page yeah. again. Uh, so on the ball with Billy Bremner, and England would have enriched the World Cup. Uh, so this is again after after the World Cup, and uh, Billy Bremner's talking a little bit about about Scotland, where he picks out uh, Jim. Well, he's he's a, he's a actually answering uh, readers' mm. questions because uh, his biggest regret is he can't reply to each one personally. Um, and so he's asked about which Scottish players impress you most in West Germany. Uh, all of them. I was proud of each and every one, but if I had to single out anybody, it would be Big Jim Holton and Joe Jordan. Uh, and that's, that's the first thing he, he says. And I hope and sincerely believe that Scotland did Great Britain proud. When we were playing for Scotland, first and foremost, I think fans of England and other home countries were rooting for us. Uh, and then, as I was saying, I was just saying earlier on, he gets asked a question there about uh, about continental players coming into English football. Uh, I have my doubts whether they could survive fifty or sixty games at our level of football. I heard Johan Cruyff admit the other week that one reason he left Ajax was that there were only half a dozen difficult matches each season. He'd find there no easy matches in England. I'm sure that superstars like Johan could adapt. But speaking generally, I believe the Continentals would find our soccer very exhausting. Uh, and then he goes on to say, cricket is benefited by having West Indians and other nationalities in the county side, but cricket was dying and needed a shot in the arm. Uh, your thoughts on that, Jonathan? Well, I think it's the stuff on the international of the overseas players that's it's the interesting thing, because um, it was only the late 70s when certainly in English football, that foreign players were, were allowed. 
So yeah, when Adilas and um, Ricky Bisha came in to, to Spurs, that that was sort of the first wave, and you got a whole load of of Eastern Bloc players who were allowed to leave when they hit twenty eight. So you had, I mean, Ante Mirachevic, uh went from Budoknos to Sheffield Wednesday. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I, of all the culture clashes, this very sort of diminutive technical Montenegrin, and I think he actually stayed with Jack Charlton in his house for a while. And um, I, 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 it must have been an England Montenegro game a few years ago. I remember interviewing him just beforehand, and him sort of saying that. He'd just be forced to play dominoes for hours with Jack Charlton or dragged off to go fishing. I had no idea what he was doing. Just sort of, uh, yeah, Jack's going fishing, you're coming with him. Uh, and, yeah, being sent on, uh, like, you know, army assault courses in pre-season to get fit. And he's sort of like, where's the ball? Like, can we just kick the ball a bit, please? Um, so, so, I mean, yeah, there was obviously a huge difference. I mean, I think, you know, with, with Bremner as well, uh, that point about the number of games, the number of hard games. Uh, I mean, no side has suffered that as much as, as Leeds his Leeds. Yeah. And you look now and you sort of think, yeah, the, the number of times, I mean, I've just, I've just done a book on um, uh, the Charlton brothers, which will be out later this year. Um, and, and so, yeah, looked a lot at, at Jack and Leeds, um, you know, late 60s, early 70s. And the number of times they go into April, still able to win three or four competitions. And end up winning one of them or none of them because they're manifestly naked. <laughs> you just sort of think they were, they were, it was almost like they were too good for that era. That in a later era, they'd have had a squad four or five players bigger and they could have rotated. But the, the game in, in 1970, um, so let me get this right. I think it was, it was a game over Easter and they played, a, they had, they'd lost 1 0 in the first leg of the year pickup semi to Celtic mm-hmm. at home. Uh, and then I think it was the Wednesday after Easter, they had the second leg, uh, where Bremner scores, actually scores a brilliant goal in that game. Um, but they played Derby on, I think, Easter Monday, so two days before that game on the Wednesday. Is that true or have I slightly... No, I must have been slightly earlier because I think they had the cup final on the Saturday, didn't they? Yeah, Celtic had the cup final as well on the Saturday. Uh, so, yeah, it must have been a week or two earlier. Uh, they, 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 they played Derby... Fields a weekend team and got fined by the FA for fielding a weekend team. But it was in the middle of this crazy run of fixtures of European Cup semis, the Cup final, uh, and they couldn't win the league. So why wouldn't you rest players? It, it's sort of a, it seems absurd to, to modernize, but you know, Clough was furious about it. Clough was a Derby manager at the time. Clough was furious about it. Um, and loads of fans were furious because he said they, they'd only got in the ground when they found out that Leeds weren't playing their full strength team. Yeah. And they felt they'd been cheated with a ticket price. <laughs> Whereas now, you know, if you go and watch, I don't know, even West Ham um, on, you know, I don't know when you're going to put this out, but on on the Sunday before Easter Monday against Arsenal, didn't play Michel Antonio, rested a few other players because they knew they had Antrack Frankfurt coming up on the Thursday. Uh, Liverpool at Newcastle on Saturday rested half a dozen players because they knew they had VRL coming up. And we just sort of think that's standard practice, but... Yeah. Yeah, 50 years ago, it really wasn't. Yeah. I was, sorry, and the other point about that is that I think it's really interesting he draws a comparison with county cricket. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the, about the cricket comparison. Yeah. And again, I guess being in Leeds, being in Yorkshire, maybe gives them an awareness of cricket that you wouldn't have had at other clubs. Um, but I think cricket was just much bigger then. And, and clearly, 
I mean, I, I think it's one of the great things of cricket in the in, in that period. Not and not just not just the county game, but uh, huge stars, particularly West Indian stars, turning out for club sides. I mean, my local club in in Northeast Whitburn, um, they were taken over in 1962 uh, by a bloke called um, uh, Sid Collins, who was the vice chairman of Sunderland Football Club. And he wanted to develop uh, part of the land that the, the stadium was on, the, the stadium, <laughs> the pitch with the three benches uh, was on. But it, it was attached to an old manor house and he wanted to redevelop the, I mean, the manor house was, was in fallen disrepair. He wanted to redevelop that, that as flat. So he bought the club and the, the legally, the, the, the cricket club will always have the rights to that land. That, that cannot be sold. Um, but he wanted to get the village on board for, for, for his redevelopment. And they finished bottom of the Durham Senior League because they—it's a small village. They have no money, and they're going up against Durham City and Sunderland and Wearmouth and you know big clubs, CM Harbour. And uh, so he went into the AGM knowing nothing about cricket and said, uh, "Like we can't finish bottom. This is not happening. What what can we do?" And somebody said, "Well, we haven't had a pro for five years. Like, every other club's got a pro." And he went, "What do you mean a pro? Like, and normally a pro just meant you know a forty-year-old who played county cricket ten years earlier." And he said, well, who's the best player we can get? And they went, well, Lance Gibbs is out of contract with Burnley, but, you know, we're not going to get Lance Gibbs. He said, well, how much will it cost? I went, well, I don't know, a grand? He said, yeah, of course we can have Lance Gibbs. Go and get him. And so Whitburn, this tiny village, buys the best player, you know, the best bowler in the world at the time. And, you know, they still only won one championship with him but <laughs> in three years. But, you know, suddenly you were turning up at this tiny little village ground watching the greatest spin bowler in the world. Brilliant. Anything else we've seen there in that uh, column? Sorry, I said Sid Collins. It wasn't Laurie Evans. I knew it was wrong. Laurie Evans was the bloke, not Sid Collins. Sorry. The I I got um. There's a bit where he gets another World Cup letter from an England supporter whose name was Mark Thatcher. Now I had to have a look, um, and the 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 age and dates unfortunately didn't match up. So it's not that one. <laughs> Ah, uh, that would have been lovely. <laughs> oh, just before, just before you go, because he, he talks about his pre-match meal, um, and he says usually it's bacon, eggs, and sausages. Um, with him and Alan Clark, we're the only two players who have large breakfasts. We must be up and about by eleven o'clock, and if the weather is dry, we'll have a stroll around the block. The other lads then have the pre-match meal, but Alan and I just have a cup of tea. I just love that the, the, the large breakfast and their eggs, bacon and sausages. The thing I don't get with that though is like, didn't they notice they felt terrible? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like when when I play my pathetic club cricket on a on a on a Saturday, yeah, all, all I can eat is bananas and flapjacks. I can't I, I can't eat a proper meal till the mm. game's over because I know that a little bit of running about playing cricket will make me feel terrible. See, uh-huh. If you've eaten like sausages and bacon and eggs before, <laughs> surely this felt yeah. ill. What? Surely there must have been one week where they they had you know, toast and bananas. <laughs> Actually, I feel a lot yeah. better. I'll just do that I next mean, it's, you're, you're spot on with that because it's like, if you have a big breakfast like that, what do you want to do? You want to go and have a lie, another lie down. So it's, it's not something. Yeah, exactly. You know, yeah, yeah. Unless that was part of the plan, I don't know. But yeah. I would say change days, but um, I'm sure there's still, you know, levels of clubs where this is happening. Well, I know Dennis Stewart, uh, who I guess is, is slightly younger. Uh, although he did 
Yeah, he'd just been making his... When was it, 74? So, yeah, he'd been, been around um, three or four years by, by then. And his pre-match meal, uh, he'd have poached salmon and he'd drizzle honey on it to get the sugar mm-hmm. from the honey. Mm-hmm. And other players thought he was mad. Uh, but he was, you know, it's light protein plus plus energy from, mm-hmm. from the honey. It's it's yeah. perfect. And so, okay, that makes sense. That <laughs> feels like a modern meal. But I just, I mean, sausages especially. Surely that would be something. <laughs> All right, we go over over the page then. Um, I I didn't see much here. So uh, there's an advert there, uh, Lawrence for kicks. So Lawrence trainers and and football, but it's not a brand name that I was aware of. Yeah, I mean, I've obviously gone through all the magazines. I've I've seen quite a few adverts for them. Um, That probably dates to a few years before this as well. I think there was a there was a pair of Lawrence ones which they had. Um, three stripes as well, so obviously that that wouldn't have lasted too much longer. As they probably would have been told to stop that. But yeah, they they don't look they don't look the greatest. They look quite. The, I mean, there's a trainer and a football boot. The football boot looks as if there's no giving it at all. Um, that looks quite. A, I, I don't. You know, the, the one of the things that drives me mad about modern football is these paper thin boots, and all it needs is just a little touch. And I appreciate that it's going to be painful, but then players go down just by little touches, whereas you're not going to feel anything wearing those ones, I don't think. So that's why I say bring back the thicker boot. Did you have a particular brand of football boot when you were younger, Jonathan? Um, I was given a pair of early Adidas Predators by Zindin Zidane. Okay. Um, and, I, I mean, they'd still be my... They're the only boots still in the wardrobe. I haven't worn them for uh, 2006, I retired. Um, <laughs> but that was a that was one of my first ever journalistic assignments was to go to Brussels. So it must have been the tail end of 99 to play test the Adidas Terrestre Silverstream, the official ball of the year 2000. And uh, I scored a volley past Edwin van der Sar, uh, lost a dribbling drill against Indians Dan very convincingly. <laughs> Uh, but then scored a free kick and uh, Alessandro Del Piero patted me on the shoulder and uh, called me maestro, which is probably sarcastic, but I'll, I'll take it. <laughs> is this the one where he told you the, t- the technique to take the per- perfect free kick? Yeah, I mean, I didn't do that, but he did tell me how to do it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah so they had like a metal wall. Um, and you know, the, I mean, I'm terrible at football. I, I should preface this. <laughs> like, if I was any good at football, this would just sound like me boasting. I'm awful at football. Uh, very enthusiastic, very bad. And so there's a line of, I don't know, 20, 30 journalists, however many. And yeah, he steps up, bang, pops a free kick, top corner. And there's no, first first time round, there's no keepers. It's quite easy to just knock a ball over a wall into an empty net. Uh, so pretty much everybody managed that. And then you put a put an handleck goalkeeping coaching goal and he smacks it in the top corner. Yeah, perfect bend right, right, in, the, right in the top corner. And I'm second last in the line of journalists. So I've been shuffling back, just knowing how humiliating it's going to be. And uh, everybody's trying to hit it a bit harder. So they're putting it in the wall, they're putting it over. You know, keepers saving it. And I realised keeper was taking a huge hop to his left because everybody's trying to go that, that top right corner. So I just smashed it bottom left as I was looking at it, bottom right for him. And his weight was all going the other way, and he couldn't get back across. Uh, so I was the only one who scored, but I hadn't done what he told us to do. I just smacked the bottom corner. But yeah, he he did say this thing about uh, 
not just striking across the ball, but sort of cocking your foot and uncocking your, your foot as you strike it. And so I did, I did play in a game about a month later, went back to university, played in, in um, played for my old college team in the game then, and, and scored one like that with the most extraordinary whip on the ball. I was, I was going for top right and it, it clattered into the left-hand post. And I pretended I meant it, but I actually was you know, eight yards off. Uh, and then every time I've tried it since, I, uh, yeah, I cocked it up. So. <laughs> <laughs> hey, all right, so the facing page there is uh, Chris Gaines of Spurs, the young Irish star who could match the brilliance of George Best. So it's uh, Chris McGrath. And uh, I've got to say, I don't I, I don't really know much about him, playing with Tottenham never, at the time. Never heard of him. <laughs> yeah, he only played for Manchester United as well. So yeah. I looked up, but yeah. yeah. Couldn't tell you anything 21, about him. 21 Northern Ireland caps as well. So, yeah. Yeah, which is which is pretty. I mean, the stats here: thirty-eight uh, appearances for Spurs, fifteen for Millwall on loan, twenty-eight for Man United, and then he went to the States with Tulsa Rednecks. So twenty-one Northern Ireland caps for what fifty-six? It's, you know, less than eighty. You know, appearances is pretty good going, isn't it? Yeah, he had a decent career by the, the looks of it. charity partner this season is the West Dumbartonshire Community Food Share. This is a charitable organisation that provides various services and support to the local community, including the following. A school uniform bank, school holiday brunch bags, food provisions, Christmas toy bank, cooking and growing lessons and a baby bank. They provide essential support to the local community in supporting individuals and families and we will be looking to support them in any way we can through the podcast. This will include drives for donations of food, money and support in the form of volunteers. We will also be raising awareness of the group to highlight the work that they do, but also to ensure that families and individuals who can benefit from the group are aware of these vital services. You can follow them on the West Dunbartonshire Community Food Share group on Facebook or westdunbartonshirecommunityfoodshare.co.uk for the website. And that's West Dunbartonshire with an N. You can also donate through our Just Giving page for the charity at justgiving.com forward slash fundraising forward slash shoot the breeze one word. Also keep an eye on our Twitter accounts at shoottb underscore podcast and at Scott's Footy Cards for updates and news on our charity partner. We'd like to say a special thank you to Pete Wiley of the Mighty Wah for the use of the story of the blues in the music for our show. You can catch up with Pete on petewiley.co.uk where you can check out the details of upcoming gigs and new music. We'd also like to thank our producer Diane Jarden for her great work and support on the podcast. Please check out transmissionroom.co.uk where you can book music recording and rehearsal facilities in Clybank. So over the page, um, is, uh, yeah. So a couple of good, a couple of good photographs uh, there. Um, sort of colour posters uh, on the left hand side. We've got Chico Hamilton of uh, Aston Villa. Uh, it says his real name is Ian Hamilton, and he was nicknamed Chico after the the jazz drummer Chico Hamilton. Uh, that's that's a great that's a great picture. I think just the background as well. You can see all, all the fans. Looks like a an early early season game or a late season game because it looks nice and sunny. People have got their jackets off. No, uh, yeah, that's exactly it, isn't it? It's the background that makes it. So the guy in the <laughs> orange, it looks like an orange jumper, long sleeve yeah. t shirt. 
with his sort of jacket over his folded arms, which just feels like how I spent most Mays of having overdressed and then being really hot <laughs> in the ground. But then there's also the right at the front, there's the like sort of like almost like a sort of almost like a park yeah. railing, the, mm-hmm. the fence. So you've got the tail end of an advertising board and then and this sort of black paling fence. And so two kids in against that. And it just looks so you just wouldn't see that in a modern stadium. Mm-hmm. Like this this yeah. sort of park fence thing. But there's also I like the bloke bottom left, the you know the old lad in his uh, short sleeve cardigan yeah. and tie. Tie, yeah. and the, the guy with his scarf draped across the, the advertising board, the, the, yeah. the bar scarf, classic sort of bar well, scarf. The, the, the scarf there is the only bit of football wear that's in there. Not a single replica shirt, which really mm. wouldn't have been yeah, at yeah. this time or, anyway. But the, there's not yeah. much in the way to say um, we are we are football fans. That you would, you know, that there's shirts, there's ties, there's all sorts going on there. Well, there's three ties, aren't there? I can see yeah. uh, four ties if you, yeah, because yeah. I have the guy in the sunglasses and the hats wearing a tie as well. So I guess four ties, uh, which if that is, I mean, I, I suspect it, it looks like a preseason friendly mm-hmm. to me in terms of weather, but maybe it is till May, maybe it is an early league game in August. But uh, I mean, given this magazine came out in August, presumably it's either. A preseason game, or it's the, the you know the May the previous season, but the, the fact that the idea that people are still going in ties to football when they weren't going to kind of you know corporate entertainment, I think is a it's a very odd very odd idea. So the the two of the top left, I'm going to shout out Brian Little on the left and Des Bremner on the right. That's that's what they look <laughs> like, the really fuzzy ones. But yeah, it's we talk about this all the time, and it's the quality of the photographs back then. It's they're not, you know, pinpoint really high definition, and it adds to the the quality for me that the fact that it is a little bit fuzzy. It's, you know, that that's that's yeah. Adds to it. But there's sort of a lack of perfection about mm-hmm. everything, right? So, uh, you know, his, his hand. You know, I don't know what he's doing with his fingers there, but it just looks a very ungainly sort of way that he's running. Uh, the bits of string tied around his ankles. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a homeliness to it. Uh, whereas, yeah, modern modern football photography is A, because it's all, you know, obviously digital technology and whatever, brilliantly sharp. But also the people taking the pictures of are sort of perfect physical yeah. specimens. Yeah. And I don't mean any any offence to Chico Hamilton, who I'm sure was very, very fit by the sons of the time. But, yeah, he, he's not a perfect specimen in the way that, I don't know, Paul Pogba or somebody is a perfect physical yeah. specimen. And the opposite page there is uh, Paul Medley, Leeds United, and that a classic yellow Admiral Leeds United kit. Yeah, that's a lovely picture, isn't it? I kind of the pose is great. Um, the sort of raised right foot just as he's laying off a volley. And I think Madeley's massively underrated as a player because he could pretty much play anywhere. Um, he, he played, um, I think, when Leeds won the League Cup uh, in, when was that, 60. 68, I think he played centre forward that day, and you sort of think of him as a as a fullback or filling midfielder. But I think I know that's a sort of obviously modern squads you don't have to do that. But to have somebody who can play pretty much can fill in according to injuries, I think was so valuable back then. I, I think maybe he's one of those players who we we slightly forget about now. I think we've just got a slight um, view of the the sock ties as well. The famous. Oh, yeah. United, the numbered sock tags at the top. Uh, just at the side there. Which... Yeah. 
Well, that that was all part of, um, and the badge as well um, was all part of. Uh, I mean, the, uh, both of them were Paul Trevelyan, mm-hmm. who, who did the the you are the ref. Um, I was his attempt sort of uh, help improve the image of the club. But I was wondering as well with that whether the fact that Bremner was doing that column, whether that was Leeds trying to sort of be more public facing. Mm-hmm. Uh, that after the sort of sixties and the the sort of uh, us against the world mentality. And, you know, an attempt to to, to reach yeah. out. Well, talking about Paul Trevelyan, then the, the likes of when they when they lined up and waved to the crowd and then turned round and waved, that was him again. So yeah, yeah. with with the with the tracksuits yeah. with their names on yeah, the back. Then, yeah, you know, as, as you obviously know, that he was coming up with all these ideas just to get an involvement with the fans and to raise the profile. All right, we can go over over the page again. For this is uh, Kevin Keegan's column. <laughs> Keep up with Kevin Keegan. And there's a picture of him there just having got off the plane. I, th- I think massive. he's one in himself. Absolutely extraordinary yeah. get up. <laughs> <laughs> he's massive Lionel Blairs, I was going to say. He's two bags of duty free. And he's... Uh... he's Yogi Lurf haircut. <laughs> <laughs> just... <laughs> it's like he's decided to dress as a, as a pepper pot or something. It's just... I, I, yeah, just... Um, yeah. Fair play. He can get away with it. I certainly couldn't. <laughs> so his column, keep up with Kevin Keegan, and it's uh, Bill Shankly is Liverpool. And uh, so Shankly's not long left the Liverpool job here. And uh, Kevin talks about when he discovered it by getting off the, the plane from a, a, a toning up uh, trip to Spain, uh, where a fan just randomly ran up to him to say, Did you know Bill Shankly's resigned? Uh, he's retired. Which is kind of. Yeah, it's kind of the odds, the kind of way you would find out something like that at the time a player would find out big news like that by just somebody coming up to him in the street. Well, again, that's, that's you know, the, and either before everybody's on their phone all the time. Mm. Um, I remember interviewing uh, Dragoslav Shikulovac, the, the great Serbian player. Um, and he he played in that last game for Red Star for Svenzvesta uh, before the Munich air crash. And he missed a late chance. And, he, you know, he... he I mean, Shikilovac, I don't know, he died three or four years ago now. Um, but he said he was always haunted by, he missed a late chance in that game. And if he'd scored, it would have levelled the, the scores in aggregate. And he always thinks, well, then we'd have needed a replay, so maybe they wouldn't have been on that plane. And I think, realistically, they would have been on that plane because they had to fill the league fixture on a Saturday. But yeah, yeah. It, yeah, he says it nags away at him. But the way he found out, he was at a cinema in, in Zemun, in, in um suburb of, of Belgrade, came out from a film, and a kid ran up to him on the steps and he just thought he wanted an autograph. And the kid said, have you, have you heard about the play? And so again, it's, yeah, it, it's only what, I mean, okay, that I guess is uh, 64 years ago, but uh, you know, th- th- this not even 50 years ago, but such a different way of, of finding out how things happened. Mm-hmm. But then I mean, the Shankly retirement was, um, it shocked everybody, didn't it? The, the, the press were gathered and they assumed it was a new signing. Yeah, and he comes out and says, "I'm, I'm retiring." Because he was only 60, 60 or sixty-one. Right. Um, see what I mean? I think Busby, Busby was fifty-nine when he retired, wasn't he? But Busby obviously had the, um, the yeah, both the physical and emotional yeah, strain of Munich. But Shankly appeared to have all his energy and you know, it's the cup final that year. Uh, when they beat Newcastle three 0 it had been one of one of the great Liverpool performances, and everybody sort of thought that it, he'd go on for 
for a lot longer. And then, of course, he regretted it, didn't he? Yeah, sort of yeah. started hanging around the training ground and Paisley had to say, Yeah, really that's helping. what Keegan's saying. It'll be strange to not see him around the training grounds. Yeah. And then I think he just kept coming until Bob Paisley had said, Can you? Yeah. And then he was left very, very bitter about that. But it's, it's a very, it's a hard thing, isn't it? To, um, I mean, I think you, you see it with Alex Ferguson, but I don't think his presence at Old Trafford is particularly helpful for new managers. But at the same time, you can't say you can't turn up when he's. <laughs> so I don't. I don't. I mean, I guess going to games is a bit different to turn up at the training ground. But yeah. but still, um, yeah, the fact that every time a goal goes in against United or, or yeah, they they draw a game they should have won or whatever, the cameras cut straight to Fergie, <laughs> and, and you have that sort of look of disapproval, and it you know it feels like he even if he's not, it feels like he's judging the manager. Mm. Uh, and I think as well, you know, it's when you mentioned uh, Stelb Gratz earlier on that um, Ask the Expert page, uh, I've just written a tribute uh, for Vitorossi, who died yesterday as we record this. Um, yeah, great. He's, he's the last ever manager of Yugoslavia before the war. Um, but he, you know, a huge figure in Bosnian football, was coach of Storm Gratz during their golden period in the 90s, was coach of Japan for a long time. Um, and he was saying that that uh, I interviewed him. I mean, it's a while ago now. I think it's two thousand and nine. But he was saying that he can't he can't leave football behind. So when he's got nothing to do, he just goes down the local playground and watches the kids playing. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think Shankly was the same. He just he, he hadn't appreciated how how much he needed it, needed the, the the routines of it. And I think that was particularly true of Shankly because. He was somebody who did everything by routine. You know, those stories of him walking up and down the training ground at Melwood, moving the stones, of you know, going over and over and over and over again, matches in his mind, working out uh, what to do. Yeah, you know, he had a very you know, life very driven by routine. And then when he broke that suddenly, you know, he, he ended up going to going to Everton, didn't he? Kind of you know, yeah, yeah. That was the only place he felt at home, which is I mean he should have left Liverpool. I mean easy to say now, but that, that's what he should have done. And then he could have gone and watched you know, Preston or or uh, Aberdeen or you yeah. know, Southampton or whoever. But um, yeah, just you know, these the sort of little domestic tragedies that that, that uh, yeah, he got, yeah, just lost his purpose after he'd retired. I think I think Ron Yeats used to take him into the dressing room and he managed Tranmere. Right. Okay. Uh, yeah, I mean, Ron Yates obviously had been a huge. Huge, oh, yeah, he'd, he'd done a huge amount for Ron Yates, yeah, uh, his career, so yeah, but just yeah, trying to get any kind of contact, yeah, football. Anything else in there, Andy, that you've seen? I think it's mainly all about Bill Shankly and that. that on there. The, the, the one thing I did, and um, because we, we, we sometimes talk about whether these are, are ghost written or actually the people themselves, and just. I'm going to read this. At first I thought he was joking, but then I saw he was deadly serious. I stopped in my tracks, my hand luggage containing family presents falling to the tarmac. I was stunned. It's just a bit melodramatic, isn't it? You can you can imagine the the video that goes with this, the the broken <laughs> the broken bottles of booze and yeah, I just saw that that was brilliant. That was brilliant. I hope that was him. Uh, right, okay, over the over the page again. So we're going to uh, news desk compiled by Peter Stewart. So uh, anything we've seen for, from here, 
few wee interesting, well, it's obviously very much filler thing as you were speaking about earlier there, Jonathan, but... Well, the, the, so the, the first one, more space, so Halifax players will have a little more room in which to work next season. Manager John Mulhall has believed for some time that the Shea pitch was too narrow, so work is carried out uh, during the summer to widen the present 70 yards playing area. He says the narrowness of the pitch has stifled play, wingers in general play down the flanks. There were a few goals scored at the Shea last season, and I'm sure that was a major reason. If a wider pitch does mean more goals, then I hope it's Halifax's that Halifax that gets them. So I did look at the record. So the season that we're talking about before, they scored 49 goals in the season, 33 at home. They scored 48 in total the next season after widening the pitch, but they scored 23 at home. So, oh sorry, that was the other way about. So the previous season they scored 48 goals, 23 at home. The next season they scored 49 goals, 33 at home. So they scored an extra 10 goals. So, I mean... Fair, yeah. fair play. I mean, the a former Sunderland player, of course, George Monhall. So, always happy to give him benefit <laughs> of the doubt. Yeah. But, it, it, I mean, it's just... It's just such a bizarre... This whole double page is so bizarre. <laughs> uh, none, none of it none of it matters. <laughs> none of this yeah, is particularly true. interesting. And, like, seriously, your, your lead story is a thing about... Halifax's pitch being widened. Yeah. Like, I mean, in a sense, it's kind of it's nice that they, it's, you know, it's not sort of big four, big six dominated. But <laughs> again, I'm trying to trying to work out what kind of sort of 1970s teenager would have been. Oh my God, Halifax have widened their pitch. Dad, Dad, Halifax have widened their pitch. Like, yeah. And then yeah, the, the the thing you were saying about the long hair. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, basically, that the, uh, they'd seen um, Ayala in the World Cup with long hair, and then they've realised who is some Airdrie player. Uh, yeah. who, what's his name? Stuart Gallagher. Gallagher yeah. Actually, has longer hair. <laughs> I mean, um, yeah, I suppose footballer's hair has been a staple for many, many years, but still, it seemed it, it seemed weak, frankly. Yeah, and they've done the United's tour to to the Netherlands as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean. <laughs> The, the, something we've noticed about these sort of pages in the past is, um, and it's been evident when when we've some there's been like three stories separately over the two pages, all about Highland League games or teams, and you're thinking somebody's up there for a wee jolly, and this is the this is they're saying, I'll justify it by coming back with a few wee stories that we could just <laughs> throw in there, so. Um, the other one, Peter Morris, so the Canaries could look to midfield star for goals. Um, so this is on solving Norwich City's goal-scoring problem. He says, I once scored seven goals in a cup final for a school team, which is great. But um, he then went to, on to score one goal in 66 league games for City. So that, that wasn't really... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know about using the justification for scoring six, seven goals. <laughs> it's almost like there's a step up in level between school football and yeah, league football. Right, we go over that over the page uh, again then. Well, the, the, there was a Clyde Bank connection in there, Tom. Yes. Oh, was it? Did, did you miss it? No, I did miss it. I did miss uh, it. Aye. So Hughes Best, uh, Tommy Hughes started at Clyde Bank before joining Chelsea in 1966. He made 11 appearances as an understudy to Peter Benetti, and he played for Hereford between 73 and 82. So there we go. We like to. Shoehorn and Clyde, uh, Tom and I are both Clyde Bank supporters, so uh, any chance okay. we get, 
for any sort of <laughs> uh, Clyde Bank link, then that gets highlighted. So, <laughs> yeah. I'd, I'd never do that with someone. So not not, not my kind of behaviour at all. Shocking. <laughs> Well, I don't know if you're aware, Jonathan, but Claybank and Sunderland have actually played each other. This was back when Claybank were ES Claybank, and uh, Sunderland came to inaugurate the floodlights at Newcombe Park um, back in, I think it was February 1965. So uh, ES Claybank had drawn with Hibs in the Scottish Cup on the Saturday, and we played Sunderland two days later and two days before the, the replay. Uh, Sunderland won 5-1. Get in. Come on. Uh, with the goals from Harry Hoods, Nick Sharkey. Uh, Nick Sharkey, good player. So there was six there was six Scots in the six Scots in the Sunderland team. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean Nick Sharkey was he sort of ended up being sort of Clough's replacement after Clough did his knee, didn't he? Right. It was a there's a beautiful goal he scores. I think it's against Bowie. Um I mean yeah, not many goals exist from that period, but it's a it's a really beautiful counter-attack and it's uh, worked down the right. I think it's Roger Usher uh, who had a massive forehead, um, the right winger, and he knocks it knocks it inside the fullback and runs around the other side and hits the cross and Sharky comes in the back. And Sharky was only about four foot two, but comes in the back post and, and heads it in. I believe they still talk about that Clydebank victory down at Sunderland, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's, it's pretty much the last thing we won. So. <laughs> Uh, so we go over the, over the page, right? So, aye. We advert for Puma, and there's a wee quiz about the police. Yeah, what's that about? <laughs> yeah, well, I think we spoke about this before, Andy. Did we speak about this when Stuart Weir was on? I know I think we spoke about David mm. F. Ross was on, but he was saying it's a sort of, well, it was a sort of recruitment mm. thing. They were sort of, you know, aiming at teenagers to join the to join the police. Okay. I think was it was it the idea behind these yeah. things. There was quite a few army ones as well about this sort of well just throughout the, the different periods actually but yeah i am um, i don't know if anybody else tried it but i don't think i think i maybe got about 50 50 percent yeah i mean like the first one i was pretty confident on um but i'm afraid my knowledge of how long personal radio batteries lasted in the early 70s was was sorely lacking yeah, yeah I'm, I'm still not sure about that whether it's the charge or the battery itself they're talking about because they do say a year, don't they? Then it lasts for a year. So I don't think the charge lasts for a year, surely. No, surely not. Yeah. yeah. Again, it's not a field I'm comfortable <laughs> in. So. <laughs> so the facing page there is uh, you are the ref. So have we picked out any of the any of the questions any of the questions there we want to look at. Yeah, I mean, I, I sort of um, I always find this with you are the ref that. Basically, you can do about one a month, and beyond that, the scenarios get so preposterous. <laughs> but I mean, the, the one in you know, number three, which is uh, so a goalkeeper, I presume, has, has sort of scuffed a goal kick and it's just dribbled outside of his box, and he's able to to run and get to the ball first, and then dribble it back in his box and pick it up. And what do you do? Um, and it, you know, it's. It, it says I got that one wrong. I, I, I assume you just be take take the goal kick again, but apparently it's an indirect free kick. Because uh, I, I well, there was there was an instance. I, I want to say it was Joe Hart. I could be wrong about that. Is is that Sanford Bridge? Uh, fairly recently, when he, I think he, he slipped in in taking a goal kick or something, 
and end up kicking the ball twice. twice. And he, he was allowed to take it again. Mm. Uh, and he, because whoever he would have been, I don't know, would he have been playing for City then? Whoever he was playing for conceded. Like he was appealing. No, you've got to stop it. Like, you know, I've kicked it twice. I've got to take this again. And it turned out he was right. Mm. Um, so, yeah, this, this seems different to that. But I guess maybe taking the ball. Is it not something that leaving, leaving the penalty area? So the ball hadn't left the penalty area, so he could kick it twice for his... This scenario, the ball's left. The uh, yeah, maybe that is it. Yeah, but I mean, I was thinking about this. Um, I don't know why this occurred to me yesterday, but how weird loads of those old laws for restarting games are. So, like, why did the ball have to leave the box? Who, yeah. why, why was that a good idea? It doesn't make any sense. Um, I, I guess the idea was that the opponent couldn't, yeah, you know, couldn't get the ball before it got out of the box. But also, kickoffs. Why did the boss go forward? Mm-hmm. And I guess it's a sign of how the games, yeah, it used to be a game about territory and about field position in the same way that rugby is. And increasingly it's become about possession. Um, and, and as we, as touch has got better and as movements got better and as players move more, um, holding the ball has become more important than getting the ball in dangerous areas. But it's, it just strikes me, it was almost like they had the, yeah, they had the pitch markings and had to work out what to use them for <laughs> rather than being sort of a rational way of starting the game. And this one, I think the first one is probably the most interesting one to pick out. It says, you award an indirect free kick in the penalty area against the defending team just before time runs out in the first half. Do you A, blow for time, B, blow immediately the ball is kicked, or C, await the outcome of the kick? Now, I would have said C, based on the current rules, you, you let the free kick happen. But the answer here is A, you blow f- for time straight away, which is just... Can you imagine yeah, well, that it's, it's, happening it's, in a game? In the... Well, it's, it's sort of an extreme version of the Clive Thomas phenomenon, isn't <laughs> yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. Um, which was, was 78. Was all Sweden? Mm. Yeah, uh, when Zico scored the header from the corner. But he, he'd blown for full time. Over half time, I think it was. Was it half time, full time, whichever? Full time, I think it was. Yeah. Uh, just, just as the corner was taken, and it was adamant. No, no, this is exactly the right yeah, amount of time to play. Thomas, yeah. Um, but we don't. You don't get indirect free kicks in the box anymore, do you? They've they've, they've sort of been now now that obstruction is no longer in the fence. They, the case, they, yeah. they don't really yeah, exist I do, anymore. I do think that is the case, and I think it's quite a recent thing, isn't it? The last um, couple of years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, we going over the the page again. Yeah, World Cup follow-up. This is quite a good couple of articles here. So on the left-hand side page, we've got uh, The Clown. I've had the last laugh. Again, like you were mentioning this earlier on, but uh, Tommy Sheck haven't played the sort of game, of his, game of his life, you know? And it was kind of accentuated with Brian Clough's comments in the, the commentary, in the pundit uh, box, saying, uh, referring to him as a, as a clown. I think that just kind of highlighted uh, what a good what a good game he had that night. Yeah, I mean, this this double page it sort of feels very modern. Sort of interviewing kind of pretty high profile foreign players. I guess the World Cup gives it more of a hook. But yeah, I mean, Tomaszewski. Um, the thing is, Clough was right. He was a clown. <laughs> um, he was a very unorthodox keeper. I don't think many of the defenders he played with necessarily appreciated him all the time. But he had a brilliant game yeah. in that game. And he had a massive personality, which I think, particularly back then for keepers, was was half a battle. Um, 
and he sort of he, he sort of become this uh what who's he the equivalent of um but he, he's just sort of if he, i mean if, if he was if, if he was english he'd be on talk sport like you know he, he's just a, a mouth for hire these days I, mean, I, I interviewed him a few years ago um and it was a great interview because he you know he's told all the anecdotes a million times he tells them all very well and he's he's you know he quite revels in saying controversial and outrageous things. Um, but you know, even his media profile now is slightly clownish. I mean, Clough wasn't wrong. Um, <laughs> it just it looked unfortunate when he went on to produce about 30 brilliant saves in the one game. And, uh, and at the facing page there has got uh, Joe Saldana, the former manager of Brazil, uh, sort of analysing their performance at the 1974 World Cup. Yeah, I mean Saldana's. Um, I mean Saldana was a journalist, right? Um, he, he then became national manager. I mean, he had a playing background, um, but uh, yeah, he he should have really been a manager in 1970. He was sacked, well, tail end of '69 or beginning of '70, because uh, basically the pressure got to him, and um, he'd started saying some really weird stuff about his best players. He he, he said he was considering dropping Pele because his eyesight wasn't good enough. Um, he had some problem with Tostao. I can't remember exactly what that was. Uh, and then there was a coach of a, I think it was called Justrich, a, a, a club coach, uh, uh, Flamengo or somebody. Uh, he criticized him and he found out he was staying in a hotel and went down the hotel with a gun. <laughs> and thankfully, Justrich was out. And at that point, and the, the problem was he, he was, um, he was very, very left wing at a period when Brazil had a very, very right wing military government and was he was very critical of the government. Um, and, and this, the uh, um, uh, what was he called? The, the Brazilian dictator at the time. Um, but he he'd wanted a, a, a player from a club he supported to uh, to, you know, picked for the squad. And Saldana had said, You know, I don't pick his cabinet, he shouldn't pick my team. And and, and sort of a combination of these things, but the gun was the sort of the <laughs> final straw. They they removed him, um, for uh, for Zagallo. Uh, and yeah, and obviously, <laughs> it, it was justified in, in, in the sense that they they went on to have a brilliant World Cup in 1970. But then, they, yeah, they 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 changed completely how they played for '74. That they they brought in um, this sort of PT instructor from the army uh, to, to to be the coach, and and they sort of they'd seen what happened in '66, where you know they'd been kicked out of the World Cup really by by Portugal and and, and Hungary and and uh, Bulgaria. And nine seventy, they knew they could get away with it because of the altitude in in Mexico. It wasn't going to be such a hard running physical game, but they really went to the physical extreme in seventy four, and that was very much the sort of football Saldana was against. So I think he was always primed. Yeah. So the headline is, "I'm glad Brazil failed," but that that was always going to be the, the line he was going to take. That he he just didn't like the people in charge of Brazilian football at the time, or or the style of football it imposed. Andy, anything you might say about just, this too? Just the, I mean, pieces. certainly the Saldana um, interview. The, it's the, the whole thing is really honest, open, forthright. He comes across sometimes as being a bit bitter, but it it really is much better. You know, much more enjoyable reading than the the stock answers that you get from from managers and stuff nowadays. Yeah, but it should be said both of these two people are notable <laughs> gobshites. <Like they're, laughs> okay. 
I, I mean, it might be partly of its time, but I think they they were people who enjoyed being yeah. provocative. Yeah, I mean, as I say, it certainly does come across as, as quite bitter about a lot of it, but um, he's certainly not afraid to to make that bitterness known. Um, yeah. All right, we can over again. Yep. Then. So, how West Germany won the World Cup, and this is very much a, a photo feature. Again, very much of its very much of its of its time. A nice wee team group there of uh, the West German uh, team after they've won the World Cup, and uh, there's photographs of uh, the equaliser and the winning goal, as well as uh, Bertie Volks there celebrating, and uh, Setmar and the Beckenbauer with the trophy. Yeah, they're sort of oddly sort of muddy pictures, aren't they? I know, I know it was a wet day uh, in Munich, but. Uh, for the photo spread, it's it's oddly unarresting, um, but I, I guess again, as you say, it's, it's of its time, um, and, and how how do you sort of represent the equaliser uh, in in seven pictures without them being these sort of muddy long range shots? Um, I love those German track seats, and I, you know, Setmeyer's goalkeeping top, like the sort of pale blue for goalkeepers. I'm a, I'm a big fan of. I agree with you about the. The, the fault or the layout of it I, ju- I don't think it works and I, I think this could have been done over four pages um, and made it a bit bigger uh, because you, you I mean looking at that you're trying to work out what's going on a bit so I'd, I'd, I'd yeah well to be honest I just I just don't think photos work I think it should be done by diagrams mm-hmm. if you're going to do it and then you can actually write the names on and you can you know, put arrows to explain what you're actually talking about uh, whereas this is just sort of yeah, you know, I know what's happening because I've seen the video yeah. of it. But if I hadn't, I wouldn't. It's, it's work for Steve McGarry, isn't it, Tom? Yeah, yeah I think so. Yeah, a few. It was a few years, few years to come yet. So Steve, I don't know if are you aware of Steve McGarry, the cartoon. The no, I don't he, he did so. a lot of match um, illustrations. Um, he did some in shoot, but a lot of the match ones, things like uh, goal of my life and things like that. And, all that sort of stuff, but um, yeah, we've had him on a previous podcast, but that would be this exactly the sort of thing that he does so well is to put it as you see in a diagram. All right, I'll hand it over to you for the yes. next bit. So it's your chance uh, to to have a focus on feature for yourself. So we're going to throw some questions at you in the same style that the footballers would have got back in the day. Okay, give me your answers. We'll start with what's your full name. Jonathan Wilson. What's your birthplace? Sunderland. What was your first car? I'd never driven. Don't have a car. Okay. Never had a car. Who's your favourite player of all time? Um, that's, that's really hard. Uh, probably Sean Elliott, uh, who was a sort of ball-playing centre-back for Sunderland in the early 80s, uh, played England 21s. Uh, basically uh, had a tangle with Graham Souness and was never quite the same again and missed the 85 League Cup final three suspension with disastrous consequences Okay, next question I think we've established this Favourite team? Sunderland okay. What's your most memorable match? Uh, I think that's uh, yeah, it's quite easy it would be the FA Cup quarterfinal replay against Chelsea in uh, 1992 uh, so Sunderland's second division team. Um, we'd sacked Dennis Smith uh, between Christmas and New Year. He'd been replaced by his 
assistant Martin Crosby, who you may remember uh, looked a bit like Robin Williams playing Willy Wonka. <laughs> um, sort of big curly hair, significant nose. Um, and our league form was pretty poor under him. It was okay. I mean, he, he, we didn't get relegated, which had been a possibility. Uh, but I, suddenly in the cup, things took off. Um, and we beat West Ham in a replay in the fifth round. And then went to Chelsea, uh, scabbed a 1-1 draw with an 83rd-minute John Byrne equaliser. And then back at Roker for the replay. Um, it was the best atmosphere ever. There's probably only about 25,000 there, but you know, 25,000 in Roker felt absolutely rammed. Chelsea had the whole of the Roker end. Um, my dad would only go in the Roker end because he was the silly stubborn old man. And so he didn't go to the game. Uh, I was in the full end with my mates. Um, and uh, we were brilliant first half. Uh, took the lead through Peter Davenport. Um, but as the second half went on, you could tell we, we, you know, we, we'd run out of steam completely. Chelsea were absolutely all over us. And Tony Norman made two or three stunning saves. Uh, Cascarino hit the bar when he had an open goal. There's a couple of incredible misses. And you just as you start to think, we might get away with this. 84th minute. 84th? 86th minute. Five minutes ago, whatever. Dennis Wise scores to equalise. And you think... I actually I turned to turned to my mate Peter, who's next to us. So he's still a mate now. The lad I was at school with. And said, God, I really hope we concede before full-time. Because if this goes extra time, we could get absolutely hammered here. And we don't deserve that. Um... And then uh, I think it was I think it was a Paul Bracewell long diagonal, um, and David Rush he come off a bench. He was it was useless, but he was local and he'd scored a winner against West Ham, so he had a bit of bit of publicity, bit of press, um, and he miscontrols it, and I, th- I think it was Frank Sinclair. I I I can only assume he sort of. Realised it was David Rush and had been a bit spooked by the pre-match coverage of this wonder kid. Just conceded a corner for no reason at all. He literally could have just stood there and let David Rush have a shot and it wouldn't have mattered. But he puts it out for a corner and Brian Atkinson takes the corner. And this is far end of the ground to, to us. And Gordon Armstrong, who's very good in the air, meets it. And you can tell it's a good header. Like Everything looks right on the header. And you can see it looping towards the corner. You can see Dave Besant diving. And it took forever, just, it took several hours to go in. And the whole time I, I, I was aware of this conversation in my brain going, it's going in. And they're going, Why is it not in yet? It should be in already. And then you see, because of the camera on the pitch, you couldn't really see the goal line. So you saw the Chelsea fans sort of slump as one behind that goal, at which you see the net shake and we know it's gone in. And every goes berserk. And it was only when I got home and saw it on telly that, the reason it's taking so long was he was at the edge of the box. He was 18 yards out. So everything, it should have been like ahead of my eight yards. Yeah. Now, you know, that was the dynamic of it. But he was at the edge of the box. It just seemed to take forever. And then even then, there was sort of three or four minutes left. I remember John Kay, who was our hardest nails right back. Um, absolutely. And he played at Wimbledon. I don't know if he, was he there at Wimbledon when Vinnie Jones was there? I'm not sure. But Vinnie Jones was playing for Chelsea that day. And he absolutely nails Vinnie Jones about 25 yards out. And there's no need to do it. He could only have been doing it to make a point. Actually, I'm the hard man here. And he decides to do it in injury time when we're clinging on to a 2-1 lead. 
giving Chelsea a free kick in a dangerous place. But to be honest, at the t- even at the time, I thought, ah, oh, fair enough. I quite enjoyed that. <laughs> and we, we, yeah, we, we, we held on and, uh, uh, yeah, one, two, one. And my dad, my dad, uh, watched the highlights on sports night later on because he wouldn't go because he couldn't go on his favorite birthday ground. <laughs> okay. Next one. Um, what's been your biggest thrill? Um, well, in, in Just football in, or in life in general? Well, I mean, the, the, the moment, um, the problem is in professional life, um, you, know, you achieve a major step and pretty quickly it just sort of feels normal. Mm-hmm. But I, I remember uh, in Champions League final 2004, so I'd, I'd covered the Champions League final in Manchester in 2003, but it was in Manchester. So that's a big occasion. Juve v Milan, um, not the greatest game, but it, it still felt like a big event and I, and, you know, I was covering it. But the next year, going to Gelsenkirchen to cover it, that felt bigger because you were actually, you know, going away to cover this major final. And, you know, we didn't know how big Jason Mourinho would become, but you sort of knew Mourinho was sort of uh, a fun figure. And then just as I was outside the ground, uh, my phone went and it was my agent to say he'd agreed a deal to sell my first book. So that that day professionally was, was brilliant because I was covering a Champions League final, the first abroad Champions League final mm-hmm. I'd done. And I got a book deal on the same day, so I would say that sort of that sort of twenty minutes uh, as I approached the ground and got that phone call. Okay, on the flip side, what's been your biggest disappointment? <sighs> um, well, I, I, my first sort of proper job in football journalism was uh, for a website called OneFootball.com, and it was ahead of its time. It was yeah, so this was. 2000 I started um, and it, it covered sort of football you know, across across Europe and into South America and Africa um, it had like, a load of really great staff uh, and we were you know, all young, it was, it was classic sort of dot com bubble thing uh, loads of people who worked on that website had gone on to, to kind of fairly significant jobs in football journalism um, it was an amazing energy about the place. Every, yeah, everybody was young. Everybody was was really committed to it. And then, just after the World Cup in two thousand and two, for complicated financial reasons that I won't go into now, but really nothing to do with the site or the, the funding of the site itself, we went bankrupt. You know, the debt was loaded onto us by another part of the company. Um, so I mean, in some ways, it got me out of there into more mainstream media and better paid media. Uh, and it had given me two years of brilliant education in, in how football journalism works and in in contacts all over the world. But that that was a really crushing moment. This this thing we'd worked on like, incredibly hard um, for not a huge amount of money and for reasons that had nothing to do with us, it, it mm-hmm. failed. Good. What's the best country that you've visited? <clears throat> imagine there's been a few. Yeah, I mean, the, the two I'd go back to still uh, are Argentina and Hungary. Um, I mean, are they the best countries? I mean, they've clearly both got pretty significant mm. issues in terms of their economies, in terms of their governments, um, in terms of past uh, dalliances with the far right. But Buenos Aires and Budapest are both incredibly beautiful cities, a sense of faded grandeur, the football culture. I mean, Hungary's has, has struggled, obviously, for the last sort of 20 or 30 years. And, and the way it's coming back now with Orban is, I think, not necessarily healthy. 
Um, but researching, yeah, their, their football cultures of a well, really from sort of 1920 through to about 1970. That's uh, yeah, the stuff I've really enjoyed. And both of them have these sort of great sort of cafe cultures where, yeah, old footballers are delighted somebody's come from England to see them and will just sit there and tell you every anecdote they know and give you every opinion they've got for, for hours and hours and hours. And as a historian or a researcher or a journalist, that, that's a brilliant thing. And they're both great food and drink cities as well. So um, I've got a huge amount of affection for both Hungary and Argentina while being acutely conscious of their political mm. problems. Which leads us nicely on to the next question. What's your favourite food? And if, you, if you're stuck for an answer, steak and chips is always there. <laughs> um, I've got nothing against steak and chips. Uh, I mean, can I say a tasting menu? Like a nice 16-course tasting <laughs> menu? Like I just, I, I, well, what I like is interesting food. So, um, uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm going out for dinner next for lunch next Sunday, and um, there's uh, we've got rabbit on the menu, and I really like rabbit. It's you know, high protein, low fat. I think you do. It's really hard to cook well. It's very easy to to to, to make it very dry. But I'm already looking forward to that rabbit just because it's very hard to get good rabbit, uh, and I think it's 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 something that. I can't believe we got this hobby horse. <laughs> I feel like every conversation I have now, I get my rabbit hobby horse. Yeah, in the days for myxomatosis, uh, pretty much the prime source of pro- maybe that's a slight exaggeration, but a very major source of protein for the for working class people, for poor people, was rabbits because there were there were mm. thousands of them and you could catch them, and, and they were they were very very healthy. And then with myxomatosis, obviously the population declines drastically. Uh, so you know, when Jack Charlton was a kid. Um, when he when he left school and joined up at the mine, uh, he had a job on the surface for uh, five or six weeks, basically sifting coal, just like taking out the the bad coal as it went along the conveyor belt. Um, but before he got there, he you know, go go an hour early, set these snares in the field near the mine, and then after he finished work, he'd go and pick up the rabbits he caught and he'd sell them around the miners. So he's making more money from his rabbit poaching than he was from from the mining. And I, I, I think that was pretty pretty common. So the loss of rabbit as a source of cheap protein, I think, is is one of the great culinary disasters of 20th century Britain. But as I say, I, I'm aware that's a niche position, and I may now be sounding like a loser. <laughs> yeah. It's okay, we'll edit that very um, sympathetically. <laughs> <laughs> Miscellaneous likes, so give us a couple of things that you like to do. Um... Well, I've just I've just got into growing camellias, um, which is a new thing for me. Uh, I've just got a bit of outdoor space. I've moved in a new flat last uh, last July, and um, yeah, my camellias are doing doing very nice, better than my ilexes. So I never thought I'd get into that. I've, I've got a wormery uh, to try and produce compost from from leftover coffee grounds. Um, so yeah, that, that would be my new my new thing. Uh, but you know, I, I read a lot. Uh, I love detective drama on telly. I mean, basically, I've, I've been middle-aged since I was about three-year-old. <laughs> and uh, the great thing is now I am middle-aged and everybody else is catching up with me. It's just I know Columbo better than them. Okay. Here's a question for you. How many eyes did Columbo have and how do we know? Oof. I don't know. Are we talking? Because you know Peter Falk. <laughs> well, Peter Falk only had one eye. Hey. But did, did he play Columbo one-eyed or two-eyed? Mm. Ah. Going to see two eyes. No, he plays in one eyed, and we know this because in episode two of series thirteen, he gets another detective in on, on an interview, 
and makes the joke three eyes are better than one. <laughs> so we know he played him as one eyes. Who's your, have you got a favourite Columbo villain? William Shit. And that's like cheese between your children, isn't it? <laughs> Even if you got one, you probably better not admit it. I saw one recently that I don't know that I knew about it, but um, it was Billy Connolly. Yeah, Billy Connolly was in one. Was he really? I, I, I didn't yeah, know that. There's a, there's, a, there's a Columbo where Billy Connolly's a baddie, and, it's, <laughs> and Billy Connolly's just playing himself. You know, it must have been before the the Mrs. Brown where he, he actually did some acting. So, yeah, if, have a look out for that one. That's Yeah, no, I will uh, do. Yeah. The other one that, that I always think about is William Shatner as well, who, yeah, yeah. that's one of my favourites. Um, I mean, you know that Spielberg directed the very first episode? Yeah. No, really? Yeah, well, the first 90 seconds of that are absolutely stunning. So it, it's, I think it's called Murder by the Book. And it's there's this writing, there's this two blokes who've, who've written a load of screenplays and things together, and one of them's trying to go, but it's the talented one's trying to go solo, so the other one ends up killing him. Um, but it starts off with him typing in this this office, uh, and you can see out the window this grey convertible pulling up down the street. And it's just this long tracking shot that kind of zooms in and zooms out. And eventually, you, you know, he gets out of the car and comes up to the door with a gun. It's just... I mean, it helps you know it's Spielberg, but it is—it's just a stunning ninety seconds of. There's no, there's no dialogue, just building the tension, seeing the two characters. I'll check that one out. Okay, on, on the flip side again, miscellaneous dislikes. So, give me a couple of things that drive you up the wall. Yeah, um, I was talking about this yesterday. Pottery, <laughs> like, um, you go to you go to a gallery or a museum or something, and. Like there's loads of pottery. I don't care. I just want I, I, painting. I like sculpture. I like pottery. It's just it's just cups. Yeah, just cups and saucers, <laughs> isn't it? Like, uh, so I find pottery very boring. Um, I mean, the classic footballers' answer is people who are rude, isn't it? But <laughs> I don't really mind them to be honest. I probably am one of them. Um, I mean, I live right by the Thames. I really hate party boats that go up and down, blasting music at incredibly loud volumes until the early hours, um, which I guess is under the footballers' category of inconsiderate people. Um, eggs. I don't like eggs. Um, I don't mind them in cake and bread, but I can't eat eggs by themselves. Omelettes, no. Um, well, yeah, will yes, that do? Absolutely. I would say about eggs, um, my, my sister is a 50 percenter in that she'll eat the yolks but she won't touch her whites. Ah. Yeah, I know. And We've always seems, thought that was a bit crazy and Jeez. a bit wasteful. But there we go. Yeah. Okay, next uh, question, and we may already know the answer to this. Favourite TV show? Um, oh, Well, it would be definitely be a detective drama. Uh, I think Endeavour. I think Endeavour's better than Morse. It took me a long time to, to accept that position. But I think I always knew deep in my heart Endeavour's better than Morse. Uh, they had a, a couple of slightly odd episodes during the pandemic, but I'll, I'll cut them some slack and say it was uh, the pandemic kind of uh, affected filming conditions. I mean, the one the one set around the football club was pretty bizarre. Mm. Um, but yeah, but the early series of Endeavour, I think, uh, I think are magnificent. Like getting the um, the period detail and also sort of foreshadowing what's going to happen in in Morse. Mm. Okay, uh, favourite singers or 
groups? Uh, see, I, I've never, I've never owned any music. Um, so my, this is, you know, I never owned a car, never owned any music. So my dad worked for Garage and my mum was a music teacher. So that, that's my very banal, passive aggressive teenage rebellion. <laughs> um, I mean, I, I, I occasionally, I occasionally listen to music to drown out the sound. I used to live above a crash. So you used to occasionally listen to music to drown out the sound of a crash when I was working. Um, so I'd listen to a lot of Morricone scores. Um, you know, anything with anything with lyrics, is, I think, is difficult to work to. Um, and what I found doing that is, especially when you're writing a book, it's a very easy way to trick your brain into getting into the right mental space to do the book. So if you play particular music, it puts you in a particular tonal place. So um, uh, I found for the names I've long ago, I end up listening to a lot of Leonard Cohen. Um, so let, let's say Leonard Cohen, but I really don't know what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay. uh, favorite actor or act- actors? That's uh, oh. tough, isn't it? Um, I mean, Sean Evans, obviously playing Endeavor, I think does a great job. Uh, yeah, what, who would I? Who would I always watch? I didn't. I didn't think Sean Evans was that good. What's that submarine thing called? I didn't think he was great in that. I mean, that was the part I think rather than him. But uh, God, I find that hard. Um, we can leave that one if you want. Well, no. I mean, I, it's one of those. I, I feel like I've I've got too many answers. Um, I share a birthday with Tom Hanks. Uh, don't know if that's just why my decision at all, but it's, it's a fact. <laughs> Um, I thought Alan Armstrong was brilliant playing George Oldfield in that mm. uh, Channel 4 documentary about, about the Ripper. Well, not a documentary, a drama yeah. about the Ripper. Um, so, yeah, he, he, that's, a, that's, a, that's a very niche thing to have said. <laughs> uh, no, it was, it, was, it was a mate of mine saw him on the bus the other day, took a picture of him and said, who's this? I recognise him. Uh, and that, that, that's why Alan Armstrong's near the front of him. But he was mm. brilliant in that. Um Let's let, let's leave it with Sean Evans, Alan Armstrong, and Tom okay. Hanks. Okay. Um, next one. So there's only a few left. Who's your best friend? Oh. No, I mean there, there, there's there's sort of half a dozen who who, who could fall in that category. So I think anybody in politics. Okay, fair enough. Who's been the biggest influence on you? So either personal or work related. Well, I, I mean, it's a very banal and obvious answer, but my man was a, was a huge influence on us. Um, uh, then professionally, uh, I mean, Kevin McCarra was uh, very good to me when I when I first started as a journalist. Uh, he just got the Guardian job. Um, did you know Kevin? I'm aware of him, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, yeah, he died uh, last year mm. or the year before. Um very sad. Very, yeah, he's only sixty. Um, so yeah he, yeah, he was a huge help at the start. Was he? An, was he an influencer? Such a, I, I don't know. Um, I, I mean, I'm very fortunate at the Guardian to to work with uh, Barney Runner and Johnny Lee, both of whom I would always read and, and you try and learn from them. I think yeah, Sam Wallace at the Telegraph. Uh, yeah, I think he does the job brilliantly, and, and because the stuff's behind the paywall, he maybe doesn't get the credit he, he should get. Um, 
But I mean, do, do they count as influencers? People you read regularly because you you sort of think I should be feeding off this. Uh, Miguel Delaney at the Independent, who's yeah, will, will be one of those in the mate categories mm. as well. Yeah, I mean, his energy is is, is extraordinary. So yeah, I don't know if that's yeah, enough of absolutely. an answer. Okay, final question: Who in the world? Which person in the world would you most like to meet? Well, if I can slightly change that and make it who I most like to have yes, met, the, yep. uh, the Hungarian coach, Martin Bukovi, okay. who I think is probably the the greatest tactician of the 20th century. Clearly a very, very difficult man. Uh, so probably he would have sort of, yeah, balled me out after about 30 seconds. And uh, <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, he... He, he was, I mean, he, he was clearly very difficult. He was also clearly a very brave and very good man. Um, so he was coach of like, Brzezinski's Zagreb during the Second World War and the groundsman uh, was was Jewish and he he hid him, or he, the, the, the groundsman hid under the sand and he took him food. Um, and then had he been caught, he, yeah, he would have been executed for that. Um, I, I think... Yeah, but I would love to have talked to him about football because I, I, you know, I think he was way ahead of his time from the early 30s and constantly evolving. And in many ways, he was the genius behind the Great Hungary of the early 50s. Um, and it worked very well. They had um, Gustav Shebesh was the manager. He was, a, you know, he was a former player, but he was a politician. He was very good at handling all the Soviets, or sorry, all the communist committees. Um I, I, and there's no way Bukovi could have done that, but Bukovi was was giving him tactical advice all the time. So, so yeah, let, let's say Martin Bukovi stuff. Thank you for listening to part one of a podcast with Jonathan Wilson. Join us next week for part two.